Chapter forty four of Lorna Doone. This is a Liverox recording. All Liverox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Liverox.org. Recording by Daisy fifty five. Lorna Doom by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter forty four. Brought home at last. To my great delight, I found that the weather, not often friendly to lovers and lately seeming so hostile, had in the most important matter done me a signal service. For when I had promised to take my love from the power of those wretchedses, the only way of escape apparent lay through the main dune gate. For though I might climb the cliffs myself, especially with the snow to aid me, I durst not try to fetch Lorna up them, even if she were not half-starved as well as partly frozen, and as for guinea's door, as we called it, that is to say, the little inches from the wooden hollow, it was snowed up long ago to the level of the hills around. Therefore I was at my wit's end how to get them out, the passage by the dune gate being long and dark and difficult, and leading to such a weary circuit among the snowy moors and hills. But now, being homeward bound by the shortest possible track, I slipped along between the bonfire and the boundary cliffs, where I found a carved way of snow behind a sort of avalanche, so that if the dunes had been keeping watch, which they were not doing but reveling, they could scarcely have discovered me. And when I came to my old ascent, where I had often scaled the cliff and made across the mountains, it struck me that I would just have a look at my first and painful entrance, to wit, the water slide. I never for a moment imagined that this could help me now, for I never had dared to descend it, even in the fairest weather. Still, I had a curiosity to know what my old friend was like, and was so much know upon him, but, to my very great surprise, there was scarcely any snow there at all, though plenty curling high overhead from the cliff, like bolsters over it. Probably the sweeping of the northeast wind up the narrow chasm had kept the showers from blocking it, although the water had no power under the bitter grip of frost. All my water slide was now less a slide than path of ice furrowed where the waters ran over fluted ridges, seemed where wind had tossed and combed them, even while congealing and crossed with little steps whenever the freezing torrent lingered, and here and there the ice was fibred with the trail of sludge weed slanted from the side and mattered so as to make rest in place. Lo, it was easy track and channel, as if for the very purpose made, down which I could glide my sled with Lorna sitting in it, there were only two things to be feared. One least the rows of snow above should fall in and bury us, the other least we should rush too fast, and so be carried headlong into the black whirlpool at the bottom, the middle of which was still unfrozen, and looking more horrible by the contrast. Against this danger I made provisions, by fixing a stout bar across, but the other we must take our chance, and trust ourselves to providence. I hastened home at my utmost speed, and told my mother, for God's sake, to keep the house up till my return, and to have plenty of fire blazing, and plenty of water boiling, and food enough hot for a dozen people, and the best bed aired with the warming pan. 
dear mother smiled softly at my excitement, though her own was not much less, I am sure, and enhanced by some sore anxiety. Then I gave very strict directions to Annie, and praised her a little, and kissed her, and I even endeavored to flatter Eliza, lest she should be disagreeable. After this, I took some brandy, both within and about me, the former because I had sharp work to do, and the latter in fear of whatever might happen in such great cold to to my comrades. Also I carried some other provisions, grieving much at their coldness, and then I went to the upper lay hay and took out our new light pony sled, which had been made almost as much for pleasure as for business though God only knows how our girls could have found any pleasure in bumping along so. On the snow, however, it ran as sweetly as if it had been made for it, yet I durst not take the pony with it, in the first place because it's his hoofs would break through the ever-shifting surface of the light and piling snow, and secondly, because these ponies coming from the forest have a dreadful trick of neighing and most of all in frosty weather. Therefore I girded my own body with a dozen turns of hay rope, twisting both the ends in under at the bottom of my breast, and winding the hay on the skew a little, that the hen pin thong might not slip between, and so cut me in the drawing. I put a good piece of spare rope in the sled, and the cross seat with the back to it, which was stuffed with my own wool, as well as two or three fur coats, and then, just as I was starting, out came Annie in spite of the cold, panting for fear of missing me, and with nothing on her head but a land horn in one hand. Oh, John, here is the most ex wonderful thing! Mother has never shown it before, and I can't think how she could make up her mind. She had gotten it in a great well of cupboard, with camphor and spirits and lavender. Lizzie says it is a most magnificent seal-skin cloak, worth fifty pounds or a fathering. At any rate, it is soft and warm, I said, very calmly, flinging it into the bottom of the sled. Tell mother I will put it over Lorna's feet. Lorna's feet? Oh, you great fool, cried Annie, for the first time reveling me. Over her shoulders and be proud, you very stupid John. It is not enough for her feet, I answered with strong emphasis. But don't tell mother I said so, Annie. Only thank her very kindly. With that, I drew my traces hard, and set my ashen staff into the snow, and struck out with my best foot foremost, the best one at snowshoes, I mean, and the sled came after me as light as a dog might follow, and Annie, with the lanthorn, seemed to be left behind and waiting like a pretty lamp post. The full moon rose as bright behind me as a pattern of pure silver, casting on the snow long shadows of the few things left above, burdened rock and shaggy foreland and the laboring trees. In the great white desolation, distance was a mocking vision. Hills looked nigh, and the valleys far, when hills were far and valleys nigh. 
and the misty breath of frost piercing through the ribs of rock striking through the pit of trees creeping to the heart of man lay along the hollow places like a serpent slouching even as my own gaunt shadow traversed it as if i were a moonlight's daddy long legs went before me down a slope even i the shadow's master who had tried in vain to cough when coughing brought good licorice felt a pressure on my bosom and a husking in my throat however i went on quietly and at a very tight speed being only too thankful that the snow had ceased and no wind as yet arisen and from the ring of low white vapors girding all the verge of sky and from the rosy blue above and the shafts of starlight set upon a quivering bow as well as from the moon itself and the light behind it having learned the signs of frost from its bitter twinges i knew that we should have a night as keen as ever england felt nevertheless i had work enough to keep me warm if i managed it the question was could i contrive to save my darling from it daring not to risk my sled by any fall from the valley cliffs i dragged it very carefully up the steep incline of ice through the now chasm and so to the very brink and verge where first i had seen my lorna in the fishing days of boyhood as i then had a trident's fork for sticking of the loaches so i now had a strong ash stake to lay across from rock to rock and break the speed of descending with this i moored the sled quite safely at the very lip of the chasm where all was now substantial ice green and black in the moonlight and i then i set off up the valley skirting along one side of it the stack fire still was burning strongly but with more of heat than blaze and many of the younger dunes were playing on the verge of it the children making rings of fire and their mothers watching them all the grave and revered warriors having heard of rheumatism were inside of log and stone in the two lowest houses with enough of candles burning to make our list of sheep come short all these i passed without the smallest risk or difficulty walking up the channel of drift which i spoke of once before and then i crossed with more of care into the door of lorna's house and made the sign and listened after taking my snowshoes off but no one came as i expected neither could i ask a light and i seemed to hear a faint low sound like the moaning of the snow wind then i knocked again more loudly with a knocking at my heart and receiving no answer set all my power at once against the door in the moment it flew inwards and i glided along the passage with my feet still slippery there in lorna's room i saw by the moonlight flowing in a sight which drove me beyond sense lorna was behind a chair crouching in the corner with her hands up and a crucifix or something that looked like it in the middle of the room lay guinea carfax stupid yet with one hand clutching the ankle of a struggling man another man stood above my lorna trying to draw the chair away in a moment i had him round the waist and he went out the window with a mighty crash of glass luckily for him that window had no bars like some of them 
Then I took the other man by the neck, and he could not plead for mercy. I bore him out of the house as lightly as I would bear a baby, yet squeezing his throat a little more than I fain would do to an infant. By the bright moonlight I saw I carried Marwood D. Witcher Hazel. For his father's sake I spared him, and because he had been my schoolfellow, but with every muscle of my body strung with indignation, I cast him, like a skittle, from me into a snowdrift, which closed over him. Then I looked for the other fellow, tossed through Lorna's window, and found him lying stunned and bleeding, neither able to groan yet. Charlie Worth doomed in, in his gushing blood did not much mislead me. It was no time to linger now. I fastened my shoes in a moment, and caught up my own darling with her head upon my shoulder, where she whispered faintly, and telling Guinea to follow me, or else I would come back for her if she could not walk the snow. I ran the whole distance to my sled, caring not who might follow me. Then by the time I had set up Lorna, beautiful and smiling, with the seal-skin cloaked all over her, sturdy guinea came along, having trudged in the track of my snowshoes, although with two bags on the back. I set her in beside her mistress, to support her and keep warm, and then with one look back at the glen, which had been so long my home of heart, I hung behind the sled and launched it down the steep and dangerous way. Though the cliffs were black above us, and the road unseen in front, and a great white grave of snow might at a single word come down, Lorna was as calm and happy as an infant in its bed. She knew that I was with her, and when I told her not to speak, she touched my hand in silence. Guinea was in a much greater fright, having never seen such a thing before, neither knowing what it is to yield to pure love's confidence. I could hardly keep her quiet without making a noise myself. With my staff from rock to rock, and my weight thrown backwards, I broke the sleds too rapid way, and brought my grown love safely out by the self-same road which first had led me to her girlish fancy and my boyish slavery. Unpursued, yet looking back as if someone must be after us, we skirted around the black whirling pool and gained the meadows beyond it. Here there was hard collar work, the track being all uphill and rough, and Guinea wanted to jump out to lighten the sled and to push behind. But I would not hear of it, because it was now so deadly cold, and I feared that Lorna might get frozen without having Guinea to keep her warm. And after all, it was the sweetest labor I had ever known in all my life to be sure that I was pulling Lorna and pulling her to our own farmhouse. Guinea's nose was touched with frost before we had gone much farther, because she would not keep it quiet and snug between the sealskin, and here I had to stop in the moonlight, which was very dangerous, and rub it with clove of snow, as Elijah had taught me, and Guinea scolding all the time as if myself had frozen it. Lorna was now so far oppressed with all the troubles of the evening and joy that followed them, as well as the piercing cold and difficulty of breathing, that she lay quite motionless, like fairest wax in the moonlight. When we stole a glance at her beneath the dark folds of the cloak, and I thought that she was falling into the heavy snow-sleep, whence 
there is no awakening. Therefore, I drew my traces tight and set my whole strength to the business, and we slipped along at a merry pace, although with many joltings, which must have sent my darling out into the cold snow drifts, but for the short, strong arm of Guinea. And so, in about an hour's time, in spite of many hindrances, we came home to the old courtyard, and all the dogs lulled us. My heart was quivering, and my cheek as hot as the dunes bonfire, with a wondering both what Lorna would think of our farmyard, and what my mother would think of her. Upon the former subject my anxiety was wasted, for Lorna neither saw a thing, nor even opened her heavy eyes, as to what mother would think of her. She was certain not to think at all, until she had cried over her. And so indeed it came to pass. Even at this length of time, I can hardly tell it, although so bright before my mind, because it moves my heart so. The sled was at the open door, with only Lorna in it, for Guinea Carfax had jumped out and hung back in the clearing, given any reason rather than the only true one, that she would not be intruding. At the door were all our people. First, of course, Betty Muxworthy teaching me how to draw the sled as if she had been born in it and flourishing with great broom whenever a speck of snow lay then dear annie and old molly who was very quiet and counted almost for nobody and behind them mother looking as if she wanted to come first but doubted how the manners lay in the distance lizzie stood fearful of encouraging but unable to keep of it Betty was going to poke her broom right in under the sealskin cloak, where Lorna lay unconscious, and where her precious breath hung frozen like a silver cobweb. But I caught up Betty's broom and flung it clean away over the corn chamber, and then I put the others by and fetched my mother forward. You shall see her first, I said. Is she not your daughter? Hold the light there, Annie. Dear mother's hands were quick and trembling as she opened the shining folds and there she saw my lorna sleeping with her black hair all disheveled and she bent and kissed her forehead and only said god bless her john and then she was taken with violent weeping and i was forced to hold her us made titch of her now i reckon said betty in her most jealous way annie take her by the head and i take her by the tosom no taming to stand here like girl cocks now don't take on those old missus there'll be von invasion to zee low but her be a booty with this they carried her into the house betty chattering all the while and going on now about lorna's hands and the others crowding around her so that i thought i was not one in among so many women and should only get the worst of it, and perhaps do harm to my darling. Therefore I went and brought Guinea in, and gave her a pot full of bacon and peas, and an iron spoon to feed, eat it with, which she did right heartily. Then I asked her how she could have been such a fool as to let those two vile fellows into the house where Lorna was, and she accounted for it so naturally that I can only blame herself, for my agreement had been to give one loud knock, if you happen to remember, 
and after that two little knocks. Well, these two drunken rules had come, and one, being very drunk indeed, had given a great thump, and then nothing more to do with it, and the other, being three-fourths or three-quarters drunk, had followed his lead, as one might say, but feebly and making two of it. Whereupon Lorna jumped and declared that her John was there. All this Guinea told me shortly, between the wiles of eating, and even while she licked the spoon, and then there came a message for me that my love was sensible, and was seeking all around for me. Then I told Guinea to hold her tongue, whatever she did among us, and not to trust to woman's words, and she told me they were all liars, as she had found out long ago, and the only thing to believe in was an honest man when found. Thereupon I could have kissed her as a sort of tribute, liking to be appreciated, yet the peas upon her lips made me think about it, and though it's fated to action, so I went to see my dear. That sight I shall not forget, till my dying head falls back, and my breast can lift no more. I now know whether I were then more blessed or harrowed by it. For in the settle was my Lorna, propped with pillows around her, and her clear hands spread sometimes to the blazing fireplace. In her eyes no knowledge was of anything around her, neither in her neck the sense of leaning towards anything. Only both her lovely hands were entreating something, to spare her, or to love her, and the lines of supplication quivered in her sad white face. I'll go away, except my mother, I said very quietly, but so that I would be obeyed and everybody knew it. Then mother came to me alone, and she said, The frost is in her brain. I have heard of this before, John. Mother, I will have it out, was all that I could answer. Leave her to me altogether. Only you sit there and watch for I felt that Lorna knew me, and no other soul but me, and that if not interfered with it, she would soon come home to me. Therefore I sat gently by her, leaving nature, as it were, to her own good time and will, and presently the glance that watched me, as at distance and in doubt, began to flutter and to brighten and to deepen into kindness, them to being with trust and love, and then with gathering tears to falter, and in shame to turn away. But the small entreating hands found their way, as if by instinct, to my great projecting palms, and trembled there, and rested there. For a little while we lingered thus, neither wishing to move away, neither caring to look beyond the presence of the other, both alike so full of hope and comfort and true happiness, if only the world would let us be. And then a little sob disturbed us, and Mother tried to make believe that she was only coughing. But Lorna, guessing who she was, jumped up so very rashly that she almost set her frock on fire from the great ash log, and away she ran to the old oak chair, 
where mother was by the clock case pretending to be knitting, and she took the work from my mother's hands and laid them both upon her head, kneeling humbly and looking up. God bless you, my fair mistress, said mother, bending nearer, and then as Lorna's glaze prevailed, God bless you, my sweet child. And so she went to my mother's heart by the very nearest road, even as she had come to mine, I mean the road of pity, soothed by grace and youth and gentleness. End of chapter 44. Recording by Daisy 55.